Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. I am just going to give an, a caveat at the beginning of the program here that I may not make it through to the end. Uh, there has been around my home thunder and lightning all day. The power went out once today. Now, that was this morning, and it hasn't happened again just yet. So I will knock on wood and hope that we can make it through the show. And uh, one thing that I will point out here is that we are still continuing to see the decline of free speech, the decline of free speech all over the Western world, and certainly Canada is not immune to this problem. And uh, we're going to be talking about this in the context of Jordan Peterson and his trial, uh, essentially, by the Ontario College of Psychologists, which has subjected him or attempted to subject him to mandatory re-education uh, for the alleged offense of tweeting any number of controversial things, one of which was retweeting Pierre Polyev. Ooh, very, very scary stuff indeed. Uh, so we'll talk about that. Also, I have to just on a side note here, mention Christian Freeland and her escapades in Alberta. Christian Freeland, who thinks she can just cycle everywhere, but somehow was clocked going, uh, according to Key and Bexie's report, 142 kilometers uh, through rural Alberta. Now, you can't blame her because it's uh, very difficult for Christopher Freeland to be in rural Alberta, so she needs to go as fast as humanly possible so she can get the heck out of there. So have some sympathy for the Toronto-Davos elite uh, wanting to make her way out of Alberta as quick as humanly possible. All of that is aside from the big story of the day, though, Jordan Peterson... Uh, having a ruling against him in court in Ontario. Now, just to avoid getting totally into the legal weeds here, he brought an application for judicial review of the Ontario College of Psychologists' decision about that mandatory re-education training. And the court ultimately ruled that the college was within its purview to impose such a requirement on, on Peterson. They basically said that, yeah, he's still allowed to talk, he's allowed to tweet, so it's not really affecting his right to freedom of expression. The college is you know, trying to reduce harm and all of that stuff. Uh, a lot of implications of this we need to dig into here. I want to welcome to the show Josh DeHaas, who is a counsel for the Canadian Constitution Foundation, which was an intervener in this case. Josh, it's good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Happy to be here. So let's start first off with, with what was really at stake here, because obviously the college is a, a private organ, but it's a, a creature of statute at the same time. He can't be a psychologist in Ontario without being a, a member of, of this college. So uh, what was really the, the main thrust of the argument here? Yeah, so um, the College of Psychologists, they're a professional regulator. So they're private in a sense, but they're, like you say, um, they're implementing the government's regulations. So um, they do have to comply by the charter, um, abide by the charter. And that means that they have to consider Jordan Peterson's freedom of speech. And so what was at stake here was essentially whether professionals, whether it's the psychologists in Jordan Peterson's case, or, you know, law lawyers like me, doctors, nurses, anyone regulated by one of these, um, professional regulator bodies, uh, whether what they say on social media, whether it's, you know, political commentary, or cultural commentary, whether that sort of off-duty conduct can lead to discipline in their professional capacity. So basically what's at stake is the ability of any professional in Canada to uh, participate in debates and say, 
you know, sometimes controversial or politically incorrect things. And what the court seems to have decided here is that it's okay for the college to um, to force people into re-education if they, you know, say, uh, put out mean tweets, basically. I found there to be a, a fair bit of, I, I don't want to speak ill of, of judges entirely, because I don't want to put you in an awkward situation as a, a relatively fresh lawyer, but uh, th there seemed to be some very strange revisionism in, in some of the arguments here. I mean, one, when you bring up discipline that I found noteworthy is the court saying that this was not a dis disciplinary order. And I, I wonder what sort of technicality they were hinging that on. Yeah, so that that caught my eye too. This is a this is an argument that the that the college made essentially that you know he wasn't he what he didn't face any actual discipline. This is just sort of a remediation, and so it's just sort of this you know minor step where they just said you know meet with some coach, and uh, this coach is going to teach you you know a world famous psychologist, uh, formerly a professor at U of T, who's been in all kinds of uh, different media, they're going to teach you how to, uh, you know, speak professionally when you're out there in the public. So um, it's a very strange argument. I thought they made that argument because, uh, you know, maybe that that would lead the um, the court to say, oh, we can't really decide this. It's premature in some sense. But I don't really understand that either. I think, you know, if you are forced uh, to spend your own money to hire a coach who's going to teach you what you're allowed to say and how you're allowed to say it, uh, I'm pretty sure that counts as, as discipline. Yes, and, and certainly when the consequences of not complying uh, will carry discipline, it, it is a step towards discipline because basically they're not even requiring this of everyone. They're going to him directly and taking issue with his tweets and saying that you've warranted this sort of re-education. And it's not even where you could say it's just about box checking or once you've gone through the course, you can just carry on doing what you're doing. They're effectively saying there is a correct way to, for you to conduct yourself and you're not doing it. Yeah, that's right. And uh, what's interesting, too, here is the court, you know, when the court's considering whether a charter right like free expression has been violated, it has to be um, if the government and in this case, if the regulator is going to limit that, it has to be minimally impairing of that right. So I think this sort of allowed the court to say, well, you know, it's not really discipline. It's just this initial sort of step um, that could potentially one day lead to discipline. It's no big deal. It's just meeting with a coach for several months and having them teach you, you know, how to speak properly. Um, but it has really big implications. Like the fact that, you know, all the media, including you are, are talking about this today is to sort of send a, a warning shot to other people in various professions that they better watch what they say and make sure it's politically correct or else uh, they might face discipline. We were talking about this a little bit yesterday in the context of medical associations and, and how physicians colleges have had a very significant crackdown, I think, on their uh, individual members' right to speak freely on, on COVID issues. And, and whether we're talking about law societies, medical colleges, the psychologist college for Jordan Peterson, I mean, anything. It could be the regulatory colleges for massage therapists, for psychotherapists. It doesn't matter. I mean, the, the, these bodies are all tremendously powerful because you don't really have a right to operate in your chosen field without being a member of them. And I, I'm just wondering in general, if this is a, an area of law that has been fairly well established in which these organizations have this much power, or if this is kind of a recent advent in, in judicial reviews. Yeah, so it's it's come up a lot more lately. And part of that has to do with the, with the pandemic. Um, 
basically, you know, there's there's always been this idea that regulators can, uh, you know, correct speech. They can take care of uh, sort of the image of the rate of the profession in the eyes of the public. And, um, you know, we at the Canadian Constitution Foundation, we don't disagree with that. Like the regulators do have some um, some role established in law to um, to prevent harm to, you know, people who are, for example, patients of Jordan Peterson. We don't take issue of that, but it seemed to come up a lot lately that just things people say at, uh, at um, you know, on Twitter or whatever are, are being policed. Um, you know, for example, it came up a lot with nurses during the pandemic, you know, nurses that opposed vaccine mandates, maybe because they've been exposed to vaccine mandates with the flu shot for decades and don't, don't like them or nurses that criticized uh, mask mandates. And so um, it's not a completely new area of law, but it's it's coming up more and more. Well, and I should point out, too, that we're not even talking about, in some cases, tweets that are, I would I would argue, outside of what a psychologist who's not Jordan Peterson could or should be weighing in on. I mean, one of the uh, tweets they brought up was him commenting on the transgender actor El- Elliot Page, formerly Ellen Page. And, uh, you know, the transgender issue is entirely fraught within psychology. One of the big debates we have in, in medicine right now is how to treat especially children that start identifying by a different gender than what their biological sex would dictate. So the idea that a psychologist cannot have heterodox opinions on the transgender issue and express them uh, is, I think, insanely, insanely offensive to what uh, professionals should be encouraged to do, which is debate live issues and hot issues in their field. Yeah, that's right. And uh, it's it's probably even worse than people realize in this particular case, because uh, what Jordan Peterson said about um, the actor Elliot Page, uh, formerly Ellen Page, was uh, just used used their their original pronoun that they used for decades because in Peterson's view, and, you know, I don't necessarily agree with him, but in his view, it's, um, you know, it's bad for the patient to, um, to, to sort of allow them to choose their pronoun because in his view, that's sort of engaging in a delusion and they're better off if they don't do that. So, you know, you can be on one side of that issue or the other, but if anybody should be able to, t- to talk about that, it's it's psychologists, right? Yeah, and I'm curious where you think this is going to go, because I, I know Jordan Peterson has been fairly unrepentant on this, and I, I know that the CCF is not uh, representing him. You're intervening, so you don't, I, I believe, get to appeal on his behalf. But is your sense that this will go to an appeal, and that if so, it could actually have a, a strong basis of success? Yeah, I think um, so. I think uh, it's pretty clear that Jordan Peterson, he doesn't intend to appeal. So um, he'll take this to the Court of Appeal. He'll ask them if uh, it's something that uh, that they should hear. And if they agree to hear it, then you'll get a three panel, um, a three member panel of the Court of Appeal, most likely deciding whether uh, whether this divisional court, which is uh, what what put out the judicial review decision today, whether they got that right. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com tech. 
Yeah, and I should say, Jordan Peterson tweeted about this, uh, and he vowed to make every aspect of this public. And we will see what happens when utter transparency is the rule. And I think if the college gets its way and Jordan Peterson has to be subjected to this, I, I think they may uh, find themselves on the losing end of that, much like when Ezra Levant many years ago uh, filmed the entire proceedings before the uh, Alberta Human Rights uh, Tribunal. So I, I think uh, very much uh, something that people will want to see. Uh, Josh DeHaas, counsel with the Canadian Constitution Foundation. Good to have you on. Thanks for doing it. Thanks so much, Andrew. All right. Thanks again, Josh. And I, I should say on, on Jordan Peterson, look, I, I'm with Josh on this. I believe there is a role for regulatory colleges because the only thing worse than uh, regulatory colleges deciding who can or can't be a member is some government bureaucrat doing it in which you know that the rules are going to be even more ridiculous. But the point of this is for these organizations to basically say, we as psychologists know what makes a good psychologist and we know what makes a competent psychologist. They are not meant to be authorities governing the entirety of your lives. But we've seen that become the case. Certainly lawyers and law societies have no doubt uh, familiarized themselves with this because of all these character laws. I mean, I mentioned Ezra a moment ago. Ezra was once threatened, and I, I don't want to get the facts wrong. I think it was, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, maybe it was more recently, uh, with the suspension of his law license in Alberta for speaking ill of another lawyer. Now, I think most people in this country could probably speak ill of a great many lawyers, but uh, he was uh, going to be uh, charged or uh, prosecuted uh, in the sense, in the broad sense, not the literal criminal sense, uh, by this law society. And he ended up just giving up his right to practice law, which is quite sad that, uh, especially with how much Ezra has to spend on lawyers, it's quite sad that he ended up giving up that, but he really had to. And I think time and time again, we're seeing uh, doctors that are wanting to speak up about vaccine mandates and harms of lockdown uh, that are being faced with punishment from their college. We now see the College of Psychologists cracking down on Jordan Peterson for, for being Jordan Peterson. That, that's the point here is that I could find you some insane doctors, psychologists, lawyers, that are on one side of the political spectrum that will be completely untouchable by the regulatory colleges. Where, where's Nilly Kaplan-Mirth's uh, witch hunt by the college for all of the nonsense she spouts about why we all need to wear like, you know, 17 masks if you're in the bathroom alone or something like that. All of this is exactly why these organizations should focus on their core mandate, which is, are you competent and are you engaging in something that is fitting with this profession? When they start legislating your private tweets, it is this creep of censorship into all of these different areas of what is supposed to be civil society and what is supposed to be our ability as, of, as individuals to engage in open debate. Because it's not politically neutral. They try to say, well, it, we, the issue is with the tone. It's like all the people that say the thing they really didn't like about Donald Trump was the tone of his speech as opposed to the content. No, they just don't like the guy. And they latch on to whatever they can latch on to, which is what these censors are doing with Jordan Peterson. They are latching on to the tone because, oh, maybe he made a little barb. I mean, one of the comments was where uh, someone was complaining about world overpopulation. And he said, you're free to leave. And now you've got all these uh, people drawing the worst faith interpretation of that that they possibly can saying, oh, is this a psychologist counseling suicide? Is this a psychologist making light of suicide? Man, no, it's not. It's a guy responding to a flippant tweet with a flippant and I'll say entirely clever and legitimate tweet of his own. 
when he talks about Elliot Page, who was a woman for the entirety of Elliot Page's career until one day Elliot Page decided Elliot Page was a man and we are all supposed to go along with it, when he made a comment about how a woman got her breasts removed, which is what his take on the Elliot Page transition was, that is a comment that you may agree with or disagree with, you may find uh, to be none of his business or you may find it to be entirely legitimate discourse. But the point is that is not for a regulatory college to decide. And the court has done what courts in Canada do, which is exact a, a level of deference to censors, a level of deference to what is increasingly an authoritarian attitude and approach to speech, in which Jordan Peterson, I mean, you know what? He, he said, I think it was yesterday, on the eve of this decision, good luck to the college for wanting to keep up its prosecution of him. And in all honesty, you can't fight a guy like that who has the means, the temerity, and the desire to fight back and expect that it is going to end well for you. So his response there, which we put up on the screen a few moments ago, is that he is going to make every aspect of this public. He also said yesterday that he stands by his words and would change nothing. So this is not a guy that is giving that little glimpse of weakness that they're going to pounce on and say, well, you admit that it was wrong. No, he's saying, I did absolutely nothing wrong, and I'm prepared to have it out, not in one of your stupid little star chambers, but in open court, so to speak. And, you know, I, I talk about Mark Stein a lot, who has been a, a lion of free speech in Canada for many, many years. And when he was going through his free speech trial in British Columbia about, oh, I don't know, nine years ago or so, it was so paramount to his lawyer, Julian Porter, and to him that it be a public hearing, that it be something that is not dealt with in chambers, but it is something that is dealt with in open court because it was so important for people to see how this process is weaponized against people. And that is exactly the case of Jordan Peterson. So I will be tuning in uh, with great enthusiasm to every single step along the way, and I hope you will be as well. Uh, speaking of compelled speech, I was talking yesterday about Catherine McKenna. She is the former environment minister in this country. Then I always like skip over infrastructure. She was also uh, the infrastructure minister in this country. So if like a highway is crumbling, it might have been her fault. But uh, the thing about Catherine McKenna is that uh, she had bla basically blamed conservatives and people who opposed the carbon tax for the wildfires in the Northwest Territory and, and in uh, British Columbia. Northwest Territories, sorry, it's plural, not singular. But she blamed arsonists, uh, which she said are those who oppose carbon tax. Now, Catherine McKenna has also been rather unrepentant on this file. <laughs> she was going on and on about this. And uh, she posted, I should have given Sean this picture because it was a fun one. She did a tweet earlier, which looks like it's the kind of thing that would have come from like a satire account, in which she said that she made a pinky promise when she was environment minister with children that she was going to save the planet or something. And then she had like all these pictures of her doing pinky promises with children, which uh, to be honest, you know, if more politicians did pinky promises, maybe the country would be in a bit better of a place than it is now. But uh, Catherine McKenna has doubled, tripled, quadrupled, quintupled, sextupled, heptupled, octupled, uh, non-uppled, and decupled down uh, over the course of the last couple of days. And her most recent tweet, which I had to bring up today, is that she wants re-education camp for conservative politicians. She says, we need a mandatory climate science lesson. 
for conservative politicians and premiers, as well as cost to the lives and livelihoods of Canadians from climate change and the economics of the clean transition. Otherwise, Canadians pay the price. It's absurd, but that's where we're at. Now, I couldn't resist taking the obvious cheap shot there. And I said that perhaps we could just start with economics lessons for liberal members of parliament. And if they don't pass, they don't get to take their seats, which means we'd have a very empty House of Commons. So uh, I'll give you your climate change uh, education for conservatives if you give me basic economics uh, free market capitalist economics for liberals. And we'll see who comes out better than that. Uh, but so basically, we are seeing the end of debate. And when people talk about education in this context and how you need to be mandatorily educated, it's not about having an education. It's about having the wherewithal to say what you want to say in the eyes of the censors, because censorship isn't enough. They have to compel certain speech. And that is exactly the direction the things are headed and people like Jordan Peterson should push back. And if Catherine McKenna ever gets her wish, uh, we should be pushing back on that as well. Uh, one thing I will say here is that uh, all of this is evidence of why I have not been as fearful of artificial intelligence as some people have, because I don't think that human intelligence has often served as well. But uh, that's a bit of a glib joke to start off what is a serious discussion, which is what AI is doing to discourse and to thought. Now, uh, we haven't talked a lot about AI on this show. I, I've kind of been waiting for the right angle and the right opportunity. And I should say, I've been one of these people that has sort of enjoyed the novelty of it. When ChatGPT has come up and you get the ability to just have a quick conversation uh, with this thing and have it give you some uh, response to a question. And uh, there's a program that I've had some fun with called MidJourney which will create AI-generated images. And you can give it a whole bunch of prompts. I've had a lot of fun with this one. The, the one that I did, I won't show you because I wasn't thrilled with it, but I asked for like childhood photos of Fidel Castro pushing young Justin Trudeau on a swing. Uh, but the AI was getting Fidel Castro and Justin Trudeau's faces mixed up, which uh, maybe makes it smarter than humans. Who knows? Uh, and then I also had some fun this morning and I asked to get like some photographs of Christian Freeland driving. So maybe we can throw those up. Yeah, there we go. I, these are the samples it gave me. I thought that speed demon, Christian Freeland, uh, fresh off the heels of getting her ticket for going however many kilometers over. That's uh, her uh, basically road racing down some Alberta highway. I like the one on the bottom right myself, although it looks a little terrifying. Uh, that one, it looks to be in Ottawa, though. You can see in the, the back right there, it looks to be a center block that she's just like leaving in the dust there. The one in the top right is good. It's a little aspirational. She's uh, she's really flying there so much that she needs the space helmet. She's putting on so many miles and going so fast, she has ascended off the ground. So uh, take from that what you will. Uh, but for all the fun that AI offers, and yes, there is some, uh, it also has very serious implications. And those implications we have not really fully explored because uh, despite the fact that this technology has been in development for many, many years, it really seems it's only been in the last year uh, that people have started to grapple with the real world implications of it. And, you know, we see this in academ academia where universities which have had to focus on detecting plagiarism now have this new, new problem, which is did students just create something original by entering a few prompts for their essay assignments into uh, chat GPT or whatnot. Uh, there's a great piece in C2C Journal by Christopher Snook about this called AI, the destruction of thought and the end of the humanities. Uh, he is a lecturer 
with Dalhousie University and a contributor to C2C Journal. And he joins us now, uh, not an AI-generated version, but the man himself. Uh, good to talk to you, Christopher. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you so much for the invitation. So let's start first off with, with where your issue is with this. Why are you concerned about AI in the context here? Yeah, I can. I, I suppose I can answer that in a, in a fairly simple way. Um, as you've already indicated, there's a great deal of joy maybe to be had with playing with sort of AI applications. Um, but at the simplest level, uh, I suppose maybe I could say two things. Uh, one would be that AI introduces, I'm a humanities teacher, so AI generated uh, content introduces into the university and uh, into students' lives, very easy uh, possibilities of escaping um, from a certain kind of reflection that may be essential to their development uh, within the context of the humanities historically. Uh, but secondly, I think I have a, pr a pretty significant concern that AI is actually indicative in many respects um, of a much longer trend in humanities education in Canada that has fairly uncritically assimilated new technological developments without reflecting on their consequences for pedagogy and education. That's quite an interesting approach to this. And, and you know, one thing that I always recall, even from my own time in university, is that essays were, were very challenging. I, I would do better at them now, but they were very challenging because you, you can't really cheat your way through an essay, unless you're actually cheating and plagiarizing and whatnot, because it's not just about knowing the facts. You can't Google the answer to the question when you basically have to show your work and, and show how you arrived at something. And, and, and certainly in an academic context, AI has huge implications for that, because all of a sudden someone else could do the thinking with you. I could just give this uh, machine uh, a bunch of different data points and say, formulate an argument for me. And that, that's something, I mean, I've talked to professors who have already been complaining about the decline in critical thinking in universities. And now mm -hmm. we've added this other tool, which maybe can be used for good, but also can further erode people having to come up with these skills on their own. Yeah, what I tried to do in the article, I mean, maybe if I, if I kind of talk about some of the points in the article, that may be helpful for, for at least giving, giving people a sense of uh, where my concern lies. So I, my concern really grew out of two things that I saw in the university last year. So the first was, a, I mean, a remarkable amount of energy and anxiety around the appearance of things like ChatGPT, right? Sort of um, large language models that can produce texts fairly competently, increasingly competently uh, for students with very, very little to no work on their side. So there's a huge amount of anxiety, as you pointed to, Andrew, earlier in your introduction, uh, in your introduction to this conversation. Um, it's a different, it's not even plagiarism in any recognizable sense. It's just allowing AI to generate texts um, from uh, the information it's kind of gathered through its internet, uh, through its chatbots on the internet. Um, so there was a huge conversation about this in the university. And what I noted was that primarily that conversation was focused on questions of use. And so I spent some time teaching engineers, though I teach humanities to engineers, and they very patiently kind of uh, tolerate this course. I was going to say, that seems, like a very, that seems like a very difficult challenge for you. Well, it's a hard sell. It's a hard sell. But they're, but they're very patient. And they, they tolerate this sort of required course on uh, effectively on the history of technologies. And one of the key things that uh, I've been thinking about since teaching this course uh, is what uh, Neil Postman simply observes, which is that the introduction of every new technology doesn't simply give a new tool to humans, but uh, he, he sort of coined the idea or helped uh, kind of articulate the idea that every technology shifts the world ecologically in much the same way that an ecosystem is changed if a new um, species is introduced, right? So it's not just that 
we have all of a sudden AI, but rather that the whole world shifts around the availability of these new technologies. And embedded in these technologies are certain assumptions about what it is to be human. And so I, it's a bit of a rambling uh, um, response to your previous comment, but what I noticed uh, in the university over the last six or seven months is that the conversation has been almost exclusively focused on use. There have been some people who are sort of uh, diametrically opposed uh, to the appearance of AI in any form in the university. I kind of tend in that direction, certainly for the humanities. Um, others who are much more uh, supportive of the use of AI in various ways to facilitate writing. Um, but regardless of where one stood on that stands on the use of AI, I've noticed that very few people are asking deeper questions, such as what kind of world does AI produce and what kind of worldview or what sort of assumptions are built into the technology. Uh, and it's there that I think universities need to really be careful about the implementation of AI, um, partly because I think AI actually uh, reveals is a bit apocalyptic. That is, it kind of reveals something about the nature of higher education in Canada that's been developing for years. And we could talk about that sort of narrowing of viewpoint diversity to different different aspects of the university life. Um, but also, I think um, the other thing that I think has been missed is that AI um, uh, AI generated texts. Uh, uh, pushes against certain proclaimed uh, positions, moral positions that the university has adopted in the last, hmm. maybe in the last decade. One aspect that this springs to mind, and you, you address it in the piece, uh, in one section anyway, notably, is, is the idea of bias. And, you know, facts in theory are neutral and they do not have a political persuasion. It's the assembly of facts and the uh, composition of various facts that you can use to sort of demonstrate something that is a bit more biased. And, and one thing we've seen in AI is how it's providing, it, it's doing the thinking for you in, in theory. But, but the problem with that, among others, is that it is producing a biased outcome. It's producing a, a biased response. I mean, I, I had once when I was first playing around with ChatGPT, a debate with a machine. So the joke was on me about what a woman is. And, and it right. was interesting seeing this machine twist itself into all of these many logical knots about uh, trying to answer this question. But it was actually quite terrifying how it started giving me the talking points I would expect if I were having this with some university diversity administrator. And it started telling me about inclusivity and tolerance and women can come in any forms. And, and uh, there, there is something there in, in which AI is basically telling people that there is one way to construct a thought when it does this, that, that you aren't actually able to assemble facts into different worldviews. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's true. And I, certainly the studies, have, the studies have varied and in some cases disagree a little bit with one another about where the biases are found in AI technologies. So some people have, there's been some studies that have tried to argue that there's, uh, because some of the early um, scraping of the internet focused primarily on, on uh, Reddit sites, that there was a kind of conservative or male mm -hmm. bias somehow in, 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 in the, uh, in the technology, but it seems to me fairly clear now that the technology seems to be biased fairly clearly, I think, in the other direction in terms of um, uh, the kinds of sources that it's recycling when it's when it's producing kind of mashup texts. Um, so I began the article, and this was one of the things, maybe a way of thinking about AI in a broader context or sort of moving back from the technology to think about what it has to say about universities. Um, I began the article in C2C really just by reflecting on the fact that 
um, a kind of formulaic uh, response to the work of pedagogy has become characteristic of universities generally in Canada, and it's in part indicated through the demand that applicants for university positions um, complete diversity, equity, and inclusion statements, diversity statements as part of their application packages. Um, and kind of famously, or if you follow these sort of stories, infamously, depends on, depends on what one thinks about all these things, um, a professor in the, in the United States asked ChatGPT to produce a diversity document just last year, and he was astounded to see, just as you've described, the speed with which ChatGPT Chat was able to reproduce all of the talking points and all of the assumptions of a fairly kind of middle of the road Canadian um, higher education position on issues of diversity, uh, inclusion and equity. Um, to my mind, what that revealed was that we're, we're sort of beginning to operate in the university in a world that is fairly um, uh, at the very least formulaic in its expectations of what, whatever diversity, uh, inclusion and equity may be about or diversity, equity and inclusion. Um, so it was from there really in the article that I, I wanted to try to see or to explore how is it that the technologies that are available to, now, to us now in the university and that have been slowly uh, growing in their implementation in the university over the last um, 15 or 20 years may actually be um, both accelerated by the advent of AI, but may also be in a certain sense pointing towards AI, that is to say pointing towards a world in which a kind of formulaic regurgitation of information becomes a kind of normative expectation um, of students, even in the context of their degrees. So um, that's sort of where the where the article began. So this just to sort of maybe make a connection with what you found when you, when you poked and prodded uh, at ChatGPT, that it, it, it tends to kind of produce um, fairly predictable results relative to certain questions. Well, there is also to this, I mean, the, the most, I guess, cogent defense I hear of, of AI is that AI is little more than a mirror to the existing world. I, I mean, AI is not really formulating its own uh, materials that it's not drawing from the, the trove of, of inputs. Now, obviously, individual inputs can be manipulated, and we also have terms of use that govern it. I, I'm trying to bring us away from the use discussion of this that uh, you were talking about earlier, but I, I guess in that sense, is this just reflecting an existing problem, or is this making it worse? Right, yeah, that's a very good question. I would say from, I, there might be two things to say about that. On the one hand, I, from, from my perspective, and this was maybe my concern with the conversation so far in higher education in Canada about AI, its preoccupation with questions of use has really prevented people from asking a much slower and more difficult question, which is to say, is this actually of benefit or is it is it uh, simply a reflection of the world we're in or is it making things worse? So I think that that deeper question about the, um, the kind of ecosystem consequences or cultural consequences of AI is not really um, being asked. Um, so that is to say, AI at some level is a kind of metaphor in much the same way one might think about um, COVID as a kind of, we can think about it as, a, as, a, as an illness, but we can also think about COVID response, at least, as a bit of a metaphor of our contemporary culture, cultural moment. Um, so there is that mirroring back. But I would say from the perspective of pedagogy, AI raises some some very deep questions that, to my mind, intensify problems that were already present. So, so it's, not, it's not so much that it simply introduces a newness that's radical, but intensifies certain very particular problems. So one of those problems, I think, is the 
is uh, connected to the to the use of devices generally for humanities education in particular. So. Um, one of the things I think many of us have experienced is the extent to which screens and screen reading and iPhones or cell phones, uh, the extent to which they actually produce in us kind of habits of scanning, a kind of hyper-attention, what one scholar calls forms of hyper-attention, not focused attention or contemplative reflection, but a kind of hyper-attention that actually tends to kind of lead us towards a certain kind of rashness in our decision-making. So that's one a deep and profound concern I have, especially when institutions seem to be dominated by certain sets of political commitments that ought themselves to be subject to serious reflection and consideration, right? So if we're in an environment where there's certain assumptions about what political positions are normative, it needs to be the case that those can be thought about deeply uh, and reflectively. And if we're using technologies that limit that capacity, then we're in a little bit of danger. Uh, but the other one, I think for me, from the perspective as a teacher, uh, is that, uh, and this would be, I mean, I, I'm affiliated with the classics department and I spend a lot of time in the last number of years uh, teaching Augustine, a sort of famous foundational voice uh, for the Western world. And Augustine uh, is one of many thinkers who highlights the fundamental role of memory in the constitution of our personalities, the sort of crucial role that memory plays. And it's kind of essential to technologies like ChatGPT that we offload or offshore um, our, the, the faculty of memory to the technological device, right? It does the work for us, right? So I don't struggle with Augustine or Dante or Homer or any of those things. I, I let ChatGPT do the struggle in a certain sense. I mean, it's not really struggling, but I let it do the amalgamation of opinion making and formation, and I'm left passive in that response. So in that sense, I think the technologies actually inhibit the kind of interior dialogue that's fundamental to education, but, but that's also fundamental to being a free person in the world. Right? Hannah Arendt, I think, points this up very, very powerfully in her reflections on totalitarianism. If we can't have a dialogue with ourselves, if we're pulled out of ourselves endlessly and offshore even our memory, uh, we lose the ability to actually be free agents in the world. So these are some of the things that I'm very concerned about at the level of pedagogy, which is why I, I, I tend to the to, to a pretty puritanical, I suppose, relationship to AI when it comes to, the, at least to humanities classrooms. I recognize AI has different applications mm -hmm. in, different, in different contexts. It's funny, at the risk of oversimplifying it, I, I think of, you know, a movie that I, I've watched that, you know, say is two hours long. I could find out what happens in that movie in about 60 seconds by just reading a plot synopsis on Wikipedia. But I don't do that. I watch the movie because there, there is something in that process. You feel, you see, you learn, you, you get insights. It's the same as why, you know, despite the fact that I may not have taken this advice when I was in high school, reading the Coles notes of something is not the same as, as reading the thing itself. I mean, I could get ChatGPT to say, you know, give me some bullet points that I can bring up in tutorial about, uh, you know, the cave or something. But that doesn't mean yeah. I, I've done that. So you're quite right. And, and, and I also wonder, I mean, to appeal to your department, the classics, if you were to if you were to input into uh, ChatGPT the most beautiful works of literature of classics that you'd ever seen and said, create something like this. Could it do that in your view? Could it create the beauty that we have seen from all of these people thousands of years ago. Yeah, that's a very interesting question. That's a very hotly debated topic, as you may know. Of course, in the in the world of visual arts, someone recently was awarded a prize, right, in, in the visual arts for an artificially uh, created, produced um, image. All kinds of, of course, very deep ethical questions around AI and its its accumulation of information and how that happens. Um, 
but uh, you know, from my perspective, for, for me, the answer to that question was really given quite beautifully by Nick Cave recently. Nick Cave, the Australian uh, singer-songwriter, uh, was asked this question. A fan sent him uh, a poem that ChatGPT had written when he asked uh, ChatGPT, write me a poem or a song in the style of Nick Cave. Uh, and Nick Cave's response was to say that uh, even if it were a good song, which uh, Nick Cave refused to concede that it was a good uh, imitation, um, he said that uh, the problem is that ChatGPT, uh, artificial intelligence, uh, has been nowhere and suffered nothing. Uh, hmm. And to be human in the world at all, as someone like Jordan Peterson is constantly reminding us, is to suffer and out of that suffering, either to, to sort of produce meaning in the world and in our lives. Um, uh, and I've, I've been fairly persuaded by Nick Cave that, that no matter how close the approximation one might be able to artificially reproduce, uh, the fact that the, uh, the technology has itself been nowhere and suffered nothing means that uh, that material can have very little consequence for me. Uh, as someone who lives in the world with all of its fragility. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I guess that would be my, my, that would be my answer, which isn't, uh, I mean, yeah, maybe not the best answer, but. No, it, it is interesting. And I, now I'm, I'm, now I'm like geeking out on this topic myself. So I think we'll have to have you back on a, in another show, but you know, I remember when, when I did, uh, you know, tutorials in, in various classes in university, the, the one thing that was always so critical when you were understanding a work was to understand the author and the context in which they wrote a particular work. And even if the author is some professor who's still alive, understanding how that professor came about, you know, you read, uh, for example, a, you know, a dissertation and you say, oh, well, this was an environmental historian. Why were they writing about this issue? And, and uh, with, with ChatGPT, that, that context is eroded because there is no human context or it's a, an amalgamation of, you know, 150 human contexts that you don't actually know about and can't see. So I, I think that's a less elegant way of, of describing what you've shared from uh, Nick Cave there. And I, I thank you for it. The piece in C2C Journal is AI, the Destruction of Thought and the End of the Humanities by Christopher Snook. And they also have uh, another part of this series written by uh, Gleb Lysak, who we had on the show a couple of weeks ago about something else entirely. Uh, Christopher, thanks so much for coming on. Good to talk to a, a real human in this day and age. Thank you, Andrew, very much. I appreciate it a great deal. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you very much. That does it for us for today. Do check out C2C Journal. They always have lots of great stuff, and we've got a great relationship with them and try to highlight as much of it as we can on this show. Uh, we will be back on Friday with a special look at the trans issue. Uh, you won't want to miss that. We've got uh, Linda Blade on and a couple of others that I hope you will enjoy the insights of. Again, not AI-generated insights. Not that there's anything wrong with it, although there is a little bit wrong with it. Uh, if you want to support independent media, which I hope you do, you can do so at donate.tnc.news, donate.tnc.news. And, and again, we are in this climate up against uh, tremendous regulations. We have uh, tech platforms responding to government regulation, and uh, we all have to make a point of supporting the work that we value. So hope you'll do that. We will talk to you soon. Thank you. God bless and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.